and welcome to the fifth Labour Leave podcast. My name is David Price, and in the studio with me here is the Right Honourable Gisela Stewart, uh, until recently the Member of Parliament for Birmingham Edgebaston. Gisela is something of a rock star in Labour circles and has been an ardent critic of the EU for many years, despite having been born in Germany. Hello, Gisela. Hello, David. And we're also very pleased to welcome David Goodhart, who is head of the Demography, Immigration and Integration Unit at the think tank Policy Exchange. Uh, he's also the author of the book, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. Hello, David. Hi. This week, we are talking about immigration and the changes in society that led to the historic vote to leave the EU last year whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, first, we're going to start with, with Gisela, and uh, we, want to be, uh, we want to be clear on this. Uh, with the apparent climb-downs on Ireland recently, the £50 billion and the ECJ, are you confident that this government can deliver a Brexit in line with what the British public voted for? I wouldn't be too confident in my expression of confidence, except that... I think the British public have a clear expectation of what they want their government to deliver. And should we fail in doing so, I think you would spark a serious undermining of your democratic institutions. And some of the problems which we experience in the House of Commons is a, also a reflection of how our traditional party divides, I think, are kind of breaking down. But coming back to you, almost your opening statements and... I know people shouldn't do this, but you say apparent and climb down. Um, first of all, this is kind of a game of three-dimensional chess. Uh, and having uh, once spent 15 months of my life negotiating across Whitehall and 27 EU countries, uh, and I thought I had a deal, and then in the last 72 hours everything unraveled, I'm, I'm afraid I, um, I still have the scars on my back of that statement, which is oft repeated but never really properly listened to, which is nothing is agreed until everything's agreed. And people like me have been always clear that, you know, you, you met your obligations. Uh, so uh, paying something as part of the leaving process, I also never had a problem with a transition period provided you knew what you were tra transiting to with a clear framework. But the ECJ, for me, is pretty much a red line. If you continue after to give the European Court of Justice a supreme authority over English and British lawmaking, then you have not left. David. Um, I think that... Theresa May is actually doing quite a good job, <laughs> despite appearances. Um, I mean, I, I mean, of course, we voted narrowly to leave the European Union. I was actually a, a Remain voter, although I'm not unhappy with Brexit. Um, but of course, we didn't vote for any particular form of Brexit. And um, I think where the government can perhaps be criticised is for... Um, for launching into Article 50 before there was a little bit more of a consensus in the Conservative Party, in the government, indeed perhaps in the country as a whole. That, the, the latter may be a bit too much to ask for. But I think they, they launched into it um, without any sort of agreement on what 
Brexit actually meant. <laughs> and so they've been in the kind of odd position of, um, of having this semi-public debate about what kind of Brexit the country wants in relation to the cabinet, in relation to the Conservative Party, in relation to Parliament, in relation to the whole country, while also negotiating the thing. And I think considering that, she's actually made remarkable progress, at least for this stage, in that, who would have believed a year ago that she's actually she's got most of the Tory Remain MPs have agreed, it seems, to leaving the single market and leaving the customs union without too much of a fuss. And, and most of the Leave Tory MPs seem to have agreed to, you know, a, a rather larger leaving fee than perhaps they would have wanted to pay initially. Um, perhaps some role for the ECJ in, I don't know, kind of some of these um, European, um, you know, Euroatom and various things like that. I mean, at least some residual role for the EC, ECJ, even if, as, as Gisela says, uh, not a significant one, and and some sort of agreement, albeit there's a there's a hiatus in the process at the moment, but some sort of a, uh, a temporary provisional agreement anyway to move forward on on Ireland. Uh, now, I mean that is a remarkable achievement. I'm just I was just at a meeting this morning. Uh, Stephen Kinnock was there giving a very kind of eloquent standard critique of what a complete you know mess the the situation is and how the the government has never had a proper sort of narrative to move us forward well it's partly because they don't have a narrative i mean this kind of conventional wisdom everybody has to have a narrative it's precisely because she's had, she's benefited from constructive ambiguity which is how she's got to the position um albeit with this slight hiccup that we, you know, we are about to move forward to the to the next stage to talk about trade, probably to extend the transitional period for another two years or whatever it is, which seems to be roughly what what the country wants. You know, we, we are going to get out, but we're going to do it you know carefully. It's not completely out of character. I mean, she benefited from constructive ambiguity. I think becoming uh, the uh, the prime minister, didn't she? In the leadership election, seems to be something of a hallmark um, of her. But, um, I mean, surely there, there have been um, clear points where, during the referendum campaign, it was spelt out that vote leave means taking back control. It means not being subject to the European Court of Justice. Presumably, not being subject to the ECJ uh, is, is, you know, it's a binary, isn't it? And surely that, that has to be a red line. Um, and obviously, if that from that follows, no customs union uh, and no single market. Yeah, I mean, it's, we're going through this period where you have a significant body of, and it's it's probably most significant inside the M25 ring, uh, who essentially have changed tactics. Uh, they still deeply, deeply regret, uh, if if not, still wake up in the morning uh, sobbing their pillows wet, uh, wondering how on earth we ended up with a leave vote. Uh, now feel that you can't really argue uh, for a second referendum on the basis of what will be the question. You're not going to go to the public and say, are you quite sure? Because they know what they will get is, is probably the much more, yeah. a more significant majority because yeah. the, the, the David Goodhearts of this world who were Remainers but are now okay with the outcome is, is, is actually much larger than you'd think. Um, and, but so the new tactics is to say, yes, we respect the outcome and then argue for what the deal should be. 
And I think if you go back to the three principles over which we wanted to take back control, which were the laws, hence the ECJ can't have automatic superiority. But that we could do something with your atom, but let's get a bit technical, but you can do something. Uh, you take back control over your borders, which means uh, not just that you can ask people to show their passport, which is what a lot of the remainments were saying, well, we've already got control over the borders. They so no, uh, we don't have control. So you can't have the single market with freedom of movement. Uh, and the third one is uh, over your trade. And to me, the, 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 the key was you break the automaticity of contributions to the European Union. And if those three things have been met, then to me, we have left. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think that's a, a good description of what leaving means. And I think even though, I mean, there were two leave campaigns after all, and they had very different um, sort of mood music and very different um, atmosphere about them, I think probably most people in both of the groups the leave groups would have signed up to that um and um uh, and there is a you know there was a narrow majority in the referendum there were what 400 plus mps voted vote, confirmed the vote to leave we had a general election which um 80% of people voted for political parties that were committed to leaving albeit not necessarily in quite the way in, in the labor party's case not quite in the in the clear way that Giesler just described it. But I mean, you know, we are clearly going to leave um, and broadly along the, the lines that you mm. just described, I think. Can, can I pick you up on something? Because mm. you say it was a narrow majority. You know, my, my nightmare scenario was a uh, Welsh referendum scenario. The, the last Welsh referendum had a turnout of just over 50% and the winning margin was 0.7%. Mm. That was my nightmare. Mm. Uh, and yet, curiously, nobody is questioning the Welsh referendum outcome. Uh, mm. Nobody is actually challenging any of the other, the, uh, the previous referendum outcome. But with this one, which had a turnout of 72%, which is a pretty respectable mm, turnout, mm. and a 3.8% margin, which given that over 70 MPs sit in the House of Commons with a winning margin below 3.8%, mm. and nobody says, well, of course, you're not really properly elected yeah. MPs, you know. <laughs> point, yeah. MPs go in, yeah. and if my majority is two, then mm. I've still won. Mm. And yet we are still rerunning the referendum. Well, so the attempt to delegitimise it has been based more on the arguments used, which are said to have been fallacious, and obviously the famous 350 million And the punishment was, budget. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, you know, both sides used, um, you know, exaggerated arguments. That's what happens in a adversarial political system. People, people, indeed, any political system, people use arguments to try and win their cause, and they, they often turn out to be exaggerations. Three hundred and fifty million pounds a week was was clearly you know, it was a gross figure, etc., etc. But, but, but there was at least a debate about it at the time. I remember exactly. It. I mean, this was the thing. If if we had said four hundred million, it mm. would have been an untruth. Mm. Actually, you're right, 350 million was not accurate. It should have been 372 million. <laughs> uh, but, you know, 350... And, mm. and then you have a debate, and then people say it's a gross figure, and net. And yet, when the Financial Times was recently running the uh, 100 billion exit bill mm. figure, I actually was that evening at a dinner at the German embassy with the editor of the FT, and I said to him, 
is that a gross or a net figure? And he said, well, it's a gross figure. I said, well, so the 350 million on the bus were right after all. And so I didn't talk to me for the rest of the evening. (laughs) (laughs) But you also have this, uh, you have this argument now from, obviously there there are a lot of uh, very unhappy Remain uh, people in this country. They are disproportionately influential in certain parts of the media, you know, the Evening Standard, um, the the centre-left media or the business media in particular. Um, they, they have a very loud voice, um, and they and recently the, the, the theme has been capitulation to a, you know, a, a set of agreements that they have been supporting all along. I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of crying capitulation to something that they have wanted Theresa May to sign up to uh, a year ago. Um, it just seems... As, uh, as a little bit baffling that was because um, they were, you know, had Theresa May not capitulated, um, then they would have been screaming blue murder, wouldn't they? Yeah, and saying, yeah. you've wasted a great opportunity to, you know, to wrap this up. And, uh, you know, you're just a political ideologue and a zealot. Um, but she did, to use that loaded phrase, capitulate. And she's been criticised for, for the exact opposite uh, of that. Mm. Mm. So um, it's almost like they're 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 sort of being a professional opposition, aren't they? Rather yeah. than holding a, a well, consistent logical point. It's been pretty point. clear all along that there is a deal that we can do, and we almost certainly will do, which is kind of Canada Plus. I mean, I don't understand all the technicalities, um, and we will continue. To, I think there'll be a much more continuity in many areas, including in the in the immigration field. Albeit, of course, we will end freedom of movement, but we will continue to have a lot of highly skilled people from the EU coming here and so on. Um, I think um, there is, there is a, 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 a and, we, and we will continue to pay into lots of, um, lots of EU organisations. We will continue to have, in effect, a kind of an associate membership, but we will have sovereignty back in all the things that Gisela mentioned that matter. Do you think that the voice of the uh, Remain side has been disproportionately loud um, so it seems that there was a collective outburst of, of grief and of misery um, from uh, a great many people who voted Remain after the referendum. And something that you say, David, in your, uh, in your recent book, um, people were walking around saying, you know, I feel like I'm living in a foreign country. I, I, you know, I've never felt like this before. It's terrible. Um, and you point out that according to to various research, uh, a great many people, I think two thirds of British people readily say to uh, to pollsters and to researchers that they already feel like they're living in a foreign country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, admittedly a very leading question, but it's been it's been asked or something like this has been asked several times by different pollsters that uh, it goes something like this that. Uh, Britain has changed a lot in recent years. Some people say that it now feels like living in a foreign country. Do you agree? No. And, and an extraordinary, frighteningly large numbers of people, about two-thirds, 62, 63% of the population, agree to that, which is why I say, um, you know, the, the, the people who, the Remainers who briefly felt like they were living in a foreign country, were welcome to the experience that apparently, you know, more than half of their fellow citizens feel every blinking day, not just on June the 24th, 2016. And I think there's been an extraordinary lack. I mean, 
particularly puzzling from people who regard themselves on the left, an extraordinary lack of empathy and, 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 and no attempt at all to understand, no emotional intelligence, no attempt to understand the people that, that I call the people from, who see the world from somewhere, uh, the category I use in my book, the, you know, the, the people who have a very different worldview from the, from the metropolitan remainers, you know, who, but they, they value stability, secure borders, they prefer, you know, they put national citizen rights before more universal rights, you know, they want decent chances for their kids who on the whole are not going to university, you know, more of a focus on technical and vocational education and decent apprenticeships and, and all that. Uh, many of these people voted to leave the European Union and it was partly because of uh, sort of d domestic uh, a feeling that, that 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 nationally, domestically, their interests were not reflected by any of the parties, including, I mean, most tragically in some ways, the Labour Party, which had traditionally represented such people. But the Labour Party had increasingly, in, in recent decades, been taken over by um, liberal-minded graduates who have a perfectly legitimate worldview of their own, yeah. but it happens to conflict in certain fundamental ways with the people they have historically represented. The, and these are seem, people you call anywhere. Yeah, the, the people who, who, who live who see the world from anywhere, who tend to be highly educated and mobile. That's a particularly important thing in Britain. I mean, I think if we could go back and change one small policy that was that, that was laid down in the, in the early 1960s, it was when we started to really expand the higher education system in the Robbins Report in the early 1960s, and we introduced uh, residential universities. It's been a really, I think it, it the, 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 the degree of separation between these value groups that we saw in uh, after the Brexit vote was particularly sharp, I think, and would have been less sharp, I think, in many other places, um, even in America um, or, or Germany, because people do not, people, sort of successful people do not leave home at the age of 18 and go somewhere else, which is almost always the, the, the story in this country. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the you know, people with more or less successful professional lives are invariably people who have left home and have and their networks and friendship groups are completely different from the ones they had when they when they were young and you saw that kind of mutual incomprehension hardly any remainers knew anybody who had voted for brexit and vice versa um and that would have been true in many countries to some extent but i think it's particularly sharp divide here and do you think that's one of the reasons why so many remainers so many anywheres were so shocked on such a a, a, a dramatic and deep level with the referendum result because you know I've I'm personally I've got many of my friends are remainers and many are leavers and all the leavers were saying leave is bound to win there's absolutely no way that leave cannot win and the remainers were saying the same to me you know mm, um, mm. Uh, with me being a sort of uh, you know but I suspect uh, that, that your leaver friends are people who had roots outside London absolutely um, yeah. whereas most of your yeah. remainers were people who only lived in London or perhaps in, a, in another metropolitan absolutely and my leaver friends were generally somewheres and my remainer friends were generally anywheres yeah. and but and people actually live a live a dual life especially anywhere as they they have their anywhere existence but they do have a home where at least they're where their parents live or where they grew up um that they sometimes come back to don't they but um so i think they've also yeah. i mean to be fair to the anywheres i mean they're they're, they're not they're not completely rootless I mean, they have yeah. made new homes but they're often not the places they came from originally indeed we saw the power of, I mean, you know, Edgbaston is probably, you know, those places that we saw in the 2017 election, 
more overtly than previously, the, the kind of the power of these anywhere places, these anywhere constituencies, I mean, essentially university towns um, uh, or, or, or university sectors of, of metropolitan um, of, of big cities. Um, you know, when I, when I was young, we talked about university seats, we meant Oxford and Cambridge. I mean, now about 20, 25% of all the constituencies in the country have a significant element of of higher education presence in them. And that's not just the the students and staff of a higher education institution. It's also, uh, at least in the more salubrious places, it's also the mainly liberal-minded graduates who've stayed behind and have made homes there. Um, the, the, the Bristols and the Brightons and the uh, and the Edgbastons and the um, you know Manchester Withenshaw and you know all of those places and a great many constituencies in London as well, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the, and and the, these are sort of anywheres that uh, anywheres have made them there somewhere places anyway. Yeah. yeah. Coming back to that, why was there such an, an, an outrage uh, after the results? I mean, I still find, particularly if I go, say, do, do some work, do a lecture at the university or give a talk, and it, people will come up and it's, it's as if they were revealing a secret thing. Well, I haven't told my friends, but, you know, I voted to leave. Uh, and the recent, uh, I, I gave a, a, a talk and... This guy came up afterwards, absolutely outraged, uh, and he said, what I really resented about your talk is because that you presented your arguments in such a way that I could not disagree with you, but you know you are wrong, and then stormed off. And I thought this just about summed up, and I thought it was Brian Eno, of all people, after the referendum, uh, who in, in one quote sort of said... You know, we all grew up thinking when there's going to be a revolution, it's going to be us who make the revolution. <laughs> Is that in your know what in this referendum? All these people who we thought who were really quite thick and up north, and they had the revolution and we weren't there. And there is this bit that they didn't see it coming. And I think that there are problems which we've got in, in, in this country. Uh, you know, there is a reason why productivity isn't going up. It is because of that skills gap. It is because for too long we've managed to patch up things by immigration. So so if you just look at this stage, you know, you, you, you've got extra money for the health service. Uh, we know we need extra nurses. It's fine to do a short-term solution, uh, which sort of brings in from abroad, but you should increase your, nurse, your training places. We cut training places, we cut bursaries, and then you begin to wonder why people think there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the universities, in a sense, the attitude of those who are under 35 is very different to the rest. But, David, you've said something which I... I, I thought the other day when I listened to Justin Greening when she said, I grew up in Rotherham, uh, and of course, you know, in the context of social mobility, and, you know, and I made my way in the world. And I thought there is still this total assumption that to make your way in the world means leaving home. I, I, I cite this speech quite a lot now. I mean, it was an absolutely, it was an extraordinary, um, it was an extraordinary speech. She says in this speech, I come from Rotherham, and when I was there, I used to dream of owning my own home, um, you know, having a well-paid, challenging career, um, and I knew I couldn't have those things in Rotherham. It, it, it is just extraordinary. I mean, you know, we should, in a way, um, 
thank her for the for the kind of openness with which she said this shocking thing about our country. I mean, Rotherham is a town of 120,000 people. It's not a one-horse town. And it's half an hour commute from Sheffield. I mean, you know, the, the whole area is a kind of, you know, getting on for a million people live in that area. The idea that you cannot have an achieved upper professional career in that place. And, and I compare that to Germany. I mean, you know, if she came from Gelsenkirchen, uh, or Essen, she would have gone to the local technical university. I mean, she might have ended up a high flyer in Berlin, um, but she could have had uh, and, and could have, you know, a, a you know decent, successful life, you know, in that comparable area, or sort of post-industrial, rather depressed area relative to some other parts of Germany. Um, and there would be no question that that to succeed, she had to leave. I mean, this and and. The, the kind of Remainer Anywheres uh, are simply not addressing these sorts of questions. Alan Milburn doesn't begin to, to, to address these questions. You know, he's now mm. left this, gone off in a great huff. Well, I mean, I mean, I think this is getting onto another subject. I mean, I think the Social Mobility Commission have done some quite good things, particularly in the area. I mean, they're very bad, actually, at making sort of proper analytical distinctions. I mean, social mobility is incredibly complicated and slippery things, and so many things get sort of mixed up in it. Uh, I mean, one of the things that they have done quite well, I think, is focusing on this business of kind of entry into the elite. But that is only one aspect of social mobility. So the, the, the concentration on um, on intern, you know, on unpaid internships, obviously grossly unfair. Um, there are what seventy or eighty thousand unpaid internships in Britain. Yeah, many, most of them will be taken by children who are already very privileged and it's ridiculous and we should do something about that, obviously. And, they, and it's good that they highlighted that and some of the... But when it comes to the, you know, the, the real issue of social mobility is about, essentially, it's the same thing about making the economy work better, is raising the general level of competence in the society. And if we then need to address some of the problems which I think have led to the disillusionment, uh, is, you know, you have a target of 50% university uh, um, participation. Um, so the relationship of the state to those who are paying back the tuition fees is, 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 is a different one. Uh, but then you should look at what I think the real scandal is, how much money we spend to, on 16 to 21-year-olds on vocational training who are not going to university, who after all are 50% of the, of, of the population. And we have a... a, a, a position now where f for the middle classes to vote in their self-interest is virtuous and acceptable. And when you then find that actually everybody at the end of the day starts with their self-interest, and I think that is perfectly legitimate. And if that goes in a different way, there's a kind of outrage of saying you didn't know what you were doing, you were too stupid to realise it, and that's still the argument. And they assume that this is only economic motivation. Mm. It is a much, much deeper motivation mm. which has led to that outcome. I think that's a great point. It's okay for one set of people to vote uh, in a way that benefits them, but it's not okay for another set. And it just so happens to divide up as far as a great many people in the media are concerned uh, that, that it's fine for Remainers to, to be self-serving but not for Leavers because then they're stupid and greedy and uh, childish and, and all the rest of it. Um, but I, I think that there's a, real, there's a real issue for the Labour Party here and for Labour policy makers. So 70% of Labour constituencies voted Leave and some of the hardest, some of the greatest concentrations of the Leave vote were amongst traditional working-class Labour voters. Um, 
where, how can the Labour Party deal with this, considering such a great fissure uh, in between different different parts of the party on this? I, I think, you know, I think both political parties have got a, a problem when they look at the future, but for Labour in particular, the referendum crystallised in a very stark and undeniable way, a, 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 a split. And it may well be that in 10, 20 years, the, the Labour Party uh, post-Corbyn is like the American Democrats, that it becomes a very middle-class, public sector, rights-based uh, with cities. Uh, I'm not sure where that leaves then a uh, large swathe of the traditional Labour Party. But if you look at the, the 2017 results, it's interesting that if you were a Labour MP in a in, in an area where you had significant numbers of public sector workers, you had a significant section of ethnic minority votes and uh, a university, you were fine. If you were in a seat like... Um, uh, Mansfield. To, yeah, Mansfield. You know, mm. when you had none of these, then you, mm. you, your Labour vote really went away because mm. we went... And, you know, it was the failure on such things as when, you know, John Mann, my, my, my colleague, was using that example of saying that if he had sports direct in, in, in the constituency. And when he said, when you had a system where jobs were going and they were only advertised in Poland and you weren't even locally advertising it, and then suddenly your local uh, population found that no, jobs were created, jobs were taken, they didn't have a chance in there. And when they complained, we told them, you're racist. Uh, that was not talking to your core. Uh, a colleague of mine went out and he did some timing with uh, Labour canvases on the doorstep. And he said it was quite extraordinary that uh, if, if, if on the doorstep they mentioned the word immigration on average, it took no longer than 45 seconds for the person who started the conversation to interrupt them and tell them they were racist. So we did not address the issues. We did not even allow a discussion. And that combined with, uh, you know, I think the rise of UKIP had something to do with uh, unfinished devolution in England outside London, that there were whole swathes of England which weren't sure about its democratic structures. And that could lead to a serious realignment. And I think we've seen the beginning of the realignment in Scotland because the 2017 election in Scotland fell between nationalists, SNP, and unionists, which of which the Conservative and Unionist Party was the greatest beneficiary. And so the next few years, I think, are going to be quite interesting in terms of how that plays out. But I, the one thing which I don't think is an option is actually business as usual. No, it's true. I mean, you know, and this is part of this broader shift in politics from a politics that is primarily socioeconomic, in which the basic unit is social class and the issues are size of the state, equality, inequality, levels of public spending and so on, to socio-cultural politics, where the issues are to do with security and identity, uh, and indeed a reaction and, and issues like immigration obviously feature very largely and European Union membership um, used to. Um, and um, these issues haven't emerged just because of sort of you know charismatic populists like Nigel Farage. They've emerged because Britain has become so much more open, both economically and socially and culturally, in the last two generations. It's transformed many places, uh, often um, against the wishes of the people who live in them. 
um, and the people who live nearby, who who perhaps haven't been transformed, see what has happened. You know, so you know these things. You know, people say the whole time. I mean, uh, Remainers, liberal Remainers, will say the whole time. But we, why are they complaining in Barnsley? There isn't any immigration in Barnsley. I mean, it's like saying, you know, why are they concerned about? Um, 9-11 in San Francisco. It happened in New York, didn't it? I mean, you know, people actually think about their whole country um, and they have a kind of, and they often, often have quite an idealistic view. In, indeed, quite contrary to what you were saying about voting in your interest, a, a, lot of, a lot of leavers, I think, knew perfectly well they may not be voting in their immediate economic interest, but economics is not what it is all about. You know, as one of the headlines after Brexit had it, meaning, not money. Now, when uh, you know relatively affluent guardian reading professionals vote labor against their immediate economic interest that is considered something to be celebrated you know they're they're being altruistic and and good for them they are um but when sunderland lady um you know votes to leave the european union jeopardizing the nissan plant perhaps in sunderland that is just considered dumb you know and stupid by often by the same people who are voting against their immediate economic interest when they vote Labour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make my point for me in a way, in, in, in indirectly, that many people regarded um, their economic interest uh, as, as a sideline, that they saw that their, as it were, their, their somewhere interest, their somewhere identity was what defined the, the uh, you know, the, the, the reason to vote Leave, wasn't it? And um so it shows that that the somewheres have a deeply embedded sense of place and a, a deeply embedded sense of of culture and and of nation. Um, and of course, that uh, you know, many Remainers would say, "Oh, that's you know, that's extreme, that's nationalist, and all the rest of it." But there, perhaps we should be bringing in this dis distinction between nationalism and nationalism. A lot of a lot of somewhere people believe in the idea of nation states, don't they? And that nation states exist for a good reason, um, and that does not make you a sort of, uh, you know, Union Jack-wearing, bother-booted uh, no, football, no, football hooligan, no, does it? No, you know, most people, not just somewheres, believe in the importance of national social contracts, that, you know, your, your country, the better-off people in the country, um, whoever it is, you know, kind of owe an allegiance to their fellow citizens before more universalist or, or even sort of European um, impulses and and a lot of people I think voted leave because they felt that those national social contracts in employment as Giesler said I mean and, and I've come across this too I mean whole distribution centres outside outside Nottingham that uh, have only only Polish people in them or only people from from other East European countries absolutely scandalous uh, and that is a you know, that is felt as a breaking of a national social contract in the labour market or in, in the welfare state, the fact that people could come here from any other European country and immediately, you know, within three weeks or, or, or three months or whatever it was, uh, that they could qualify for the entire range of social rights that the, the British citizens are also entitled to. So you had competition for social housing with people who, who you didn't feel were kind of legitimate competitors in a way. I mean, surely I'm a British citizen, shouldn't I come first here? Um, and, and and I think that is common sense. Of course, much of the much of the kind of liberal establishment, you know, you, re you remember Gordon Brown's famous speech, you know, British jobs for British workers, um, and it was kind of greeted with outrage. Um, but I mean, 
you know, 20 years before, it would have been, it, he wouldn't have said it because it would have been considered so banal. We've, we've made this sort of extraordinary change in that relatively short period of time. And just, just to add to that, uh, in, in, in a sense, the, the, the United Kingdom, you already have a supranational identity to be British. So someone like me who was born in Germany, I would never say I'm English. Uh, but I, I very easily can say British. So the the, the sort of the, the dark underbelly of the darker side of nationalism, which is ex- excluding others, I think the, the British in many ways had overcome it. Then you get to the point of uh, too much when you've got these masses of, you know, too too big a movement of of labour, which is usually the young. It's not very good for the host country either. You know, there's a certain level which is fine because we've always had that kind of movement and then if it's in numbers which you can't plan for then you have a problem you know it it takes time to provide the school places and all those things and these these should be these are legitimate neutral debates which the politicians should have had if you know now with hindsight even the labor politicians say in 2004 we should have insisted on transition periods but with that acknowledgement that that's what they should have done. They don't finish the argument by saying, because it didn't allow us to do those things. Absolutely. Thank you very much. This has been a fantastic debate, and um, more of which uh, later, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is David Price, and I'd like to thank Gisela Stewart and David Goodhart. Thank you both. Thank you.